Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. I'm very, very happy to be here today with the writer Elif Batuman. Uh, Elif has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2010. Her first book, The Possessed, Adventures with Russian Books and the People Who Read Them, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her new book, The Idiot, is her first novel. The main character's consciousness was such a funny, lucid place to dwell for a while that I spent the whole book wishing I'd never have to leave it. Uh, that character is Selin a Turkish-American Harvard undergrad in 1995, and the novel's the story of her figuring out how to navigate relationships and life in the semi-grown-up world. Welcome to Think Again, Elif. Thanks so much. So happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you here. Um, I think let's start, uh, if you don't mind, with a short reading from the book as an entry point into, into the, the conversation. So this is a moment in the book where Celine and her friend Ralph are like just wandering around and it begins right there. Mm -hmm. yeah. We spent the next two hours doing the kind of pointless things we always did. We walked back to the river and when it did finally start raining, we ran into the lobby of the Doubletree Hotel and sat on the floor in the glass elevator and watched the rain. Sometimes someone called the elevator and it went up or down. Nobody seemed to mind us or told us to leave. When the rain stopped, we went to Chili's and ordered an awesome blossom, a gigantic, battered, deep-fried onion cut into petals. We ate about a third of it. Then it became impossible to eat any more. One of the most remarkable things about the giant sculpted deep-fried onion was its powerful resemblance to an artichoke. Ralph told me about the onion and artichoke theories of humanity, which he had learned in sociology class. According to the artichoke theory, man had some inner essence, or heart. According to the onion theory, once you had unwrapped all the layers of society off of man, there was nothing there. Seen from this perspective, the idea of an onion masquerading as an artichoke seemed sinister, even sociopathic. In later years, the awesome blossom became known to contain almost 3,000 calories and was named the worst appetizer in America by Men's Health, at which point Chili's took it off the menu. And yet, like, it's good that it existed for a moment just so that that philosophical reflection could happen, you know? Yeah, that's the, that's the <laughs> complexity of the world. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's sort of impossible not to not to commit the intentional fallacy in looking at this book. I mean, I, I guess a lot of this is coming from your own experience. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's a safe yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I don't, we don't have to like do a point by point postmortem, but I guess I was wondering throughout whether, um, Celine keeps notebooks. I was wondering mm -hmm. whether like you actually kept and go back to detailed notebooks of when, when writing something like this, just because the moments are so specific? I mean, yeah. or you have a really great memory or imagination or both? Like. Um, <laughs> well, when I turned in this manuscript, I was uh, 
38, and there's no way I could have remembered all of those details from when I was 18. Right. But actually, I wrote the first draft when I was, I think, 23. I wrote the first draft in like 2000. I took a year off of graduate school to write a novel, and I wrote this like long novel about my college experiences. Right. And then I uh, couldn't finish it, and I went back to grad school, and I kind of forgot about it. And then in 2015, I was supposed to be writing another novel that was about um, much more recent experience. Like it, it was also on the autobiographical side, but it was set in 2010. And um, I found myself writing a flashback in it to the narrator's college years. Okay. And then I was like, why am I sitting here trying to invent this like a chump when I like wrote a whole novel that I'm not looking at because I know it's going to be embarrassing and stupid, but like it's going to be better than sitting here pretending that I can remember stuff that happened. So then I looked it up and I know that when I wrote it, I had a lot of stuff that I've lost since then. I had I had all of my undergraduate emails at that point, which I don't have anymore. Okay. I had um, I did keep diaries. So I think there was a lot of documentary evidence that went into it that I don't have access to anymore. So it's it's odd. It, it's yeah, kind of a time capsule of a forgotten time for me. I mean, I'm really interested in these processes and like how, you know, my question is sort of First of all, why why do you think you sort of weren't ready to finish it mm -hmm. back when you were yeah. 23? Let's start there. Yeah. yeah. I think there were two reasons. One reason is um, it was quite autobiographical, and I felt at the time that I had to fictionalize it more. So the part where I literally got bogged down was, um, so in real life, I spent the summer after freshman year teaching English in a Hungarian village, right. and I wanted to write about that. But I somehow thought I had to like protect the village by fictionalize it. Okay. So instead, I had it set at um, I I just I was living in San Francisco and I had a subscription to the San Francisco Public Library and they had some kind of display on Karl May and then I learned for the first time that there are like Europeans who are obsessed with Native Americans and at the same time I read online about this, I was like looking at the web page of a Hungarian university and on the anthropology department page there was this story about how the anthropology department was going to go to Africa to study, um, they had gotten this money and they had been preparing to study kinship structures that were in this one particular village community somewhere and then they couldn't get visas so they didn't go. So instead they just moved to the Hungarian countryside and set up that village with like they replicated the kinship structures with the graduate students oh, wow. and I thought that was amazing. So I decided that instead of a, a English teaching program, I would invent a Native American anthropology program <laughs> where they were like bringing American college students to like help them with like, I don't know, authenticity, which is completely absurd. So I, I, it was unwritable. I just couldn't write it. So that's where the, that's where it really Oh, but it, but it would be so mud. wonderful at the same time. <laughs> I mean, unwritable because you couldn't do it without like sort of caricaturing the whole thing. Somehow. Yeah, without car like, and why? <laughs> why would they? Why would you invite American college students to help you to tell you about Native Americans? It just doesn't really yeah makes sense like because yeah. they didn't speak English. It's like kind of a uh, I was sort of alighting the whole colonial history of. Right. Maybe that's why. I right. don't, I'm not sure. There's or something wonder, wonderfully it, cartoonish about it. There is it, something though. wonderfully. It would, I mean, it would have been a different book if I could have written it. Maybe it's a book for a different writer, and that just wasn't what I was able to do. And then the other reason that I think I wasn't able to finish it, I, um, it wasn't this. So the manuscript that I, I had, I had like, I'd been moving it from like FTP to like the sky drive to what it was just like in the cloud for all this time and then I was I was actually in Italy and then I uh, I think that's why I was able to download it because I was in this like at this fellowship in Tuscany like surrounded by pug dogs and it was just <laughs> it was removed enough and then I was looking at it and 
when I was writing it, it's a book full of like embarrassing and awkward situations. And I think I felt really ashamed of it when I was, I felt ashamed of having had those experiences. I felt, I felt ashamed of writing about them. And when I was reading the draft, mm. there were like, those experiences were there, but there was a lot more. There were a lot of flashbacks from, you know, the present, from the present when I was 23. And they were written in this perspective of like, oh, when we're young, we do such foolish things. And then when we're older, we learn. And then it would go into these like, like kind of 90s style lyrical riffs. It would go into like second person, like a video game. There was like this whole apparatus <laughs> that was put onto it that was like to show I, the person writing the book, am not actually as stupid as the person who's doing all these things. And when I was reading it, rereading it, that person was insufferable. And the person who my heart went out to was the 18-year-old who was in these situations who no longer seemed shameful to me at all. I don't know if it's because I actually was in therapy in a serious way for the first time when I, when I revisited this. Maybe uh -huh. that's why. But I was able to look at it and I saw, like, that's just a person in the world. She, this is the background she had. She had, you know, she knew a lot about some books. She knew right. absolutely nothing about how to navigate in the world. And that's what you get. Like, and that just seemed, that's when I called it the idiot, was when I realized that those were the parts that were dear to me. Yeah, no, I mean, there, that, that's right. There's no sort of judgment on Celine at all. And in fact, I get the feeling like she has a lot of doubt. She slash old you has a lot of doubt about this sort of anthropologist on Mars kind of a way she has of looking yeah, at, at yeah. the world. But there's no, there's no, from the reader's perspective and maybe from your perspective writing it, there's a lot of love for the way that she sees. Like, she's a remarkable view, you know, on things like one. Oh, thank you. Yeah. One of the comments from readers that made me the happiest was, I've had lots of wonderful comments from younger women, which makes me very happy, but I was very surprised that an older man told me when I read this, I remembered just what it was. I went to Brown after I came from the Midwest. I didn't know anything, and I was so I was so ashamed of myself and I was so embarrassed about my mistakes and reading it, I just thought you should give that guy less of a hard time. It just made me so happy. <laughs> well, I mean, I wondered though, like about like continuity between that and uh, you now, mm -hmm. like, I mean, when I look through the things that you've written for The New Yorker, I mean, mm -hmm. some of them, sure, you've written about Turkey and whatever, but then you've written about the dung beetle and the like, you know, corpse oh, yes, flower. Yeah. And there is a there is a certain amount, and even the thing you wrote you know, about Turkey, about going to Urfa, mm -hmm. you're sort of coming in from the, you know, the outside, outside and yeah. allowing yourself to have the distance that you have and kind of move in the world without this necessarily cohesive sense of, of you know, yeah. total organization, maybe. Yeah. Which is not to say that your writing is disorganized. I'm not oh, no, that, no, you know. I, no, I appreciate what you're saying. I think if I had to come up with a pat explanation for it, I would say it's probably growing up in a different country than my parents grew up right, in. Sure, and it just, sure. You, you don't feel like you have a whole, one whole story. And just going back and forth, if you want there to be a whole story, like you have to tell that story. Yeah, related to that, it, throughout this book, English as a foreign language mm -hmm. plays a, a big role, or there are a number of characters who speak, including um, Ivan, mm -hmm. I guess, the sort of almost boyfriend. Mm -hmm. um, there's a strange kind of poetry and like philosophical displacement that happens somehow from that language like what do you what do you think about I felt like you were aware of that as a writer like kind of how that language jars you yeah. into seeing things more clearly in some ways yeah definitely I think by the time I, I wrote it I had one year of graduate school 
So I, I had the certain critical apparatus that I was drawing from, and I, I was really struck by Shklovsky's idea of defamiliarization, of artistic language as language that defamiliarizes, okay. which, speaking a language you don't know, also defamiliarizes. So there's some, some, artist, some connection between artistic. Oh, that's interesting, um, yeah. And also, um, there's also a quote by Tolstoy that I was really moved by that said, when you first go to the Caucasus, it's as beautiful as a poem that you half understand in a foreign language, and maybe later when you understand it, well, it's not quite as beautiful as it was when you didn't really understand it. And something about that, because there's the other line that's being tread a lot in the idiot is the like the line between the pretentious and the acceptable. Right. And it's like it's I think it's really connected to that. It's like there's a certain amount of beauty that you can only get by being sort of unclear, which is people experience as, as frustrating, but you, that's what you have to do if you want to get to that level of mystery, and that's there in foreign languages too. Right, I, you know, I, my, as I was saying, um, my wife is Turkish, and I've been mm -hmm. to Turkey a number of times, and like, there's a video that we did, when we first, um, before we were married, we traveled around a, quite a bit, and we filmed, you know, with a little handheld camera, maybe 24 hours of going through Cappadocia and various places, with mm. me mostly babbling, you know, uh, commenting on the scene, right? Okay. And I go back and I look at it, and then we cut it down to like a movie, you know, mm -hmm. an hour or whatever. I go back and I look at it and I'm like horrified in some ways <laughs> at, you know, my sort of like just American idiotic entitled kind of humor about everything. Like, like I'm sort of laughing. I'm not, I mean, it's not cruel, but I'm like, yeah. I'm finding humor in the funny English, Turkish, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. on the monuments in Cappadocia and such. And, and yet, the experience of wandering around those places was, you know, life-changing for yeah. me, precisely because I, in part, didn't understand anything. You know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm working on a sequel to The Idiot, and part of it takes place in Cappadocia, and that is a very destabilizing and kind of life-changing place. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for the audience, Cappadocia is a, a region with like crazy land formations created by volcanoes, I think, yeah. a million years ago, or volcanic activity yeah. rather, that are sort of like these cones or fairy chimneys, and many of them were inhabited by early Christians who later ended up fleeing from the Roman Empire. Yeah, it was yeah. like always on the edge of some empire that was fighting with another empire, so there was always someone trying to hide there. And the same thing that made the rock able to be sculpted in those formations made it really easy to dig. So there's just these whole underground cities, and then there's like, there's these like huge just phallic rock formations <laughs> with like houses inside and like places for like bird houses and right just and also like incredibly imaginatively fertile is the fact that something like five percent of those underground cities have been excavated yeah. apparently oh like, my god yeah yeah and they're just these massive winding catacombs you know that some of which could house ten thousand people yeah it's, yeah that we don't it's know an about incredible crazy place it's to an incredible, go crazy it's place. like going to mars I, the other thing I really liked, you, you kept mentioning the wharf sapir hypothesis, <laughs> which is, which is, um, you know, I mean, my understanding of it is basically the the argument, like wharf and sapir, I guess we're arguing that like that language mediates your experience of reality, and so this is where the idea, like, oh, the Eskimos have some native northern people have some incredible number of names for snow, words for snow, and that means that they see snow in much more detail. Mm -hmm. And Céline is like, believes it and is annoyed that it's sort of like critically snorted at. I wonder if you could talk a little bit, because it seems like it's woven yeah. throughout. It seems important to you. It is important to me. I don't, I haven't really kept up with the state of 
linguistics, but I still think it's true. I mean, I see they set out with these hypotheses where if Sapir-Whorf hypothesis was true, then we would expect this. We would expect people whose languages have more words for different colors to remember paint chips better than other people. And then they did studies and showed that that was not true. And then they said, okay, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is false. Or they said, you know, they went and they looked at the words for snow and they found that English has just as many words for if you count slush and right. sleet and flurry and whatever. And to me, that was like they chose, they didn't choose the right hypothesis. I don't know. I'm not sure how, what would be the right, I'm not good at designing these empirical tests, but um, I'm not sure what it would be. But I, I feel like they were not quite testing the right things. And the example that I give in the book is that, um, and then I say that actually the experience that I had of speaking Turkish and speaking English, I really felt that I was being forced to think differently in Turkish and that it did kind of transfer over to English there, there, just right. there is a difference. The thing that I wrote about in in the idiot is there's a in Turkish. If you say that something happened in the past, it's a different word if you saw it happen yourself, or if you heard if someone else told you that it happened, or if someone said something to you directly, you you say it one way, or if if you just heard that they said it to someone else, it's so there's like for gossip, there's this whole special tense and it like right. it, it evokes these particular emotional responses that just don't exist in English where you're not forced to, and uh, like word order is another thing the word order is so different that I think you're you're just your thinking is a little bit it's a little bit different and I don't know if it's that it you know changes your perception of the world but I mean what is your perception of the world if it isn't a series of sentences that you tell yourself I'm just not sure that those two things and I feel detached. like, uh, yeah, and I feel like the sort of, you know, again, like speaking very broadly and not knowing much about the state of linguistics, but it seems to me that the hating on, on Worf Sapir mm -hmm. is kind of this like knee-jerk scientific allergy and sort of irritation against subjective experience and yeah. wanting to basically like treat it as romanticism yeah. if you're trying to say that anyone... That's definitely there. Yeah. That's the bad part of it and the kind of less bad part of it is it was seen as essentializing and a little bit racist to say that these people so I guess right. they had both of those things. It's complicated. I, I want to ask you a bit about um, Dostoevsky who oh, yeah. is you know you credit you write uh, lyrically rapturously about him in your in your afterward and like <laughs> and and the book is titled the idiot and your previous one was titled the possessed you obviously can you talk a bit about your relationship maybe with Dostoevsky like yeah, yeah I've been thinking about my relationship with Dostoevsky I actually when I wrote the possessed the title comes from Dostoevsky's novel the demons which was translated into English as the possessed and it, the when I wrote that book I originally thought of it as a retelling of Dostoevsky's Demons set in a Stanford-like complet program. It was going to be a novel. And then everyone was like, oh, that's an awful idea. So instead I did uh, essays, and that was kind of the title essay was sort of what was going to be the, the basis of that novel. So Dostoevsky's novel was really important for that. But elsewhere in the book, like for me, the most important Russian novel in my life was Anna Karenina, and maybe, you know, Eugene Onegin. They're, they're sort of together, but more, more Anna Karenina. And Dostoevsky's like maybe... I don't know, somewhere a little bit after that. And I don't know how useful it is, but there's this tendency to divide people into Tolstoy people and Dostoevsky people. Okay, um, what's which, in broad strokes? What, yeah, what is that? What, what does it mean if you say that you're a Tolstoy a, yeah, person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the Tolstoy people are like, they're more into realism and they're more, there's more historicity in Tolstoy. There's, a, I don't know, Dostoevsky, 
the people who like Dostoevsky see themselves as more kind of intellectually rigorous, and the people who don't like Dostoevsky see Dostoevsky as histrionic. And there's this gotcha. word in Russian, Dostoevshina, which means Dostoevskiness, and it just means like running around and screaming and like prostrating <laughs> yourself on the floor. <laughs> it's like, it's a very useful word. They had a meeting go, you can just be like, too much Dostoevshina. <laughs> but um, oh so I always. That's great. I thought of it kind of as like Tolstoy is sort of more to me cinematic and Dostoevsky is more like theater, like it's more schematic. You're, it's like there's these five characters in a room, their situations have been like ratcheted up to the 9,000th degree and it's like if you, if you take someone whose poverty has been like lifted to this and someone whose abasement has been lifted to the mathematically highest degree and then you insert a, a monk, then like what happens? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah, no, go ahead. I mean, where, yeah. Whereas with Tolstoy, it seems more like he's taking less abstract and more realistic. So he, he cares more about the furniture. He cares more about the scenery. It's like yeah. it's a little less like this psychological theater that is in Dostoevsky. And I always thought I liked Tolstoy better because I like to just go into that world and forget myself. And and there's something very. I mean, they're both super Christian, but there's something a little bit excessively Christian about Dostoevsky that I found sort sure. of alienating. So I always thought that I was a Tolstoy person. And then as I just went through life, I realized that at some point I was like, okay, I've written two books with Dostoevsky titles. The first book was supposed to be a retelling of a Dostoevsky book. Then there's like a conversation in The Idiot where Sidin and Ivan talk about Dostoevsky and Ivan's like, he loves Dostoevsky and Sidin's like, I don't really care for him that much. And I was like, at what point am I going to admit that like, I really like Dostoevsky <laughs> <laughs> and that he's, I feel almost like with Dostoevsky that with some people of whom I guess I'm one, like one is drawn to it very powerfully and then also very powerfully repulsed, which is actually the kind of situation that Dostoevsky describes all the time, like this perverse oh, feeling really of funny. like, like I love it and yet I hate it. And like if you look at Nabokov, he's always saying horrible stuff about Dostoevsky, but then if you look at his actual, you know, like volumes have been written about the Dostoevsky subtext in Nabokov's novels, and they're really there, so it's clearly it gets in at some level. Yeah, I mean, Nabokov was such a kind of, I love him so much, but, yeah. but he was such a... He wasn't super reliable about his own influence. And so sort of um, judgmental, yeah, like cold yeah, yeah. and calculatingly yeah. judgmental that like, I can just see, yeah, I mean, Dostoevsky, like, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot kind of, hanging out at the edges it's a mm -hmm. bit it reminds me of Shakespeare in yeah, that way yeah, as well like because it reaches that high theatrical proportion but like but there's pure there's truth throughout mm -hmm. like Definitely. you never feel it's not um no the truth is the point yeah it's not Dickens in that yeah, sense yeah, you know yeah, exactly. like whereas no. Dickens is a guilty pleasure yeah, like I do yeah, I love him but I still feel a little like eh, I can't quite own oh I love Dickens I mean I love it but like then there's a part of me that like he's such He's such a sap, you know, I just yeah, feel like, sap, yeah. but I love him, but mm -hmm. I feel weird about it a little. Yeah. That's, the, that's Nabokov's criticism of Dostoevsky that I remember, is that okay. there is a scene where Raskolnikov and Sonia are sitting next to each other and it's like, and so the criminal and the harlot sat over the good book in the light of the flickering candle and Nabokov was just like, nope, nope. No. <laughs> <laughs> so... I think there's so much more to talk about, but I think it's a lot of it's going to come up maybe in the context of these surprise videos. That oh we're yeah, watch let's be now. surprised so by the videos. Yeah, let's surprise. Do it. So the first one that we've got is Maria Popova. Okay. Talking about the genius of Ursula Nordstrom, who I don't know who oh, that is. No, so I don't either. Let's see. Unless she's the founder of Nordstrom. Behind our favorite children's books, a woman who championed imagination. 
Hardly anyone has raised more conscientious, imaginative children than the legendary mid-century children's book editor Ursula Nordstrom, who brought to life such multi-generational classics as Margaret Wise Brown's Goodnight Moon, E.B. White's Charlotte's Web, Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree, and Maurice Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are. During her long tenure at Harper and Row, Nordstrom was not just an editor to her authors and her artists, but their friend, their confidant, their therapist, their greatest champion always. She stood up against censorship and constantly bolstered the creative confidence of these young writers and artists. She was especially instrumental in the life of Maurice Sendak, who might not be who we know him as today without her. And she, by the way, was a beautiful letter writer. Her letters are collected in a book called Dear Genius by the children's book historian Leonard Marcus. And so in one exchange with Sendak, he wrote to her despairing over having been commissioned to illustrate the work of Tolstoy and feeling utterly inadequate to match Tolstoy's genius. And so she wrote to him and said, you may not be Tolstoy, but Tolstoy wasn't Sendak either. You have a vast and beautiful genius. This emboldened Sendak enormously, and by the following year, he was already working on his very own Where the Wild Things Are, which went on to become one of the most beloved children's books of all time. But most of all, Nordstrom defended the world and the experience of the child against all the commercial pressures for commodities and conformity and politely boring storytelling that dominated children's books at the time. And so the most benevolent patron saint of modern childhood ended up being a gay woman working at the height of consumerism and somehow managing to publish and envision and defend books that were not forgettable commodities, but extraordinary masterworks that stood the test of time and moved and inspired and enchanted generations. The thing that it stuck in my mind is the sort of unstated implication that starting to illustrate Tolstoy led Sendak to, to, to do the, Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah. But I don't think that's actually what she was saying, was it? Mm, no. I'm, well, I mean, so it, sounds, was, it, sounds like, it sounds like the time periods overlapped, yeah, right? He was struggling to yeah. write, and then she bolstered his confidence, which maybe somehow in yeah. some ancillary way. That's so interesting. Yeah. What children's books did you love most when you were growing up? I did love Charlotte's Web. I did love Where the Wild Things Are. Fairy tales, I was very into fairy tales. The first kind of like book I wrote, I had this like huge Grimm's fairy tales collection. They would keep saying, you know, and then the witch, and I, I thought, is it always the same witch or is it a different witch? And then I, you know, I thought I could go through it and reduce it to like, you know, four witches who were responsible for all the <laughs> stories and then write a book about those witches. So I was trying to do that. That was tough. It wasn't easy. Yeah. Big Winnie the Pooh fan. I, I, yeah, for me, I think it was The Hobbit for sure. Oh, yeah, I like The Hobbit. The first thing I ever wrote was a school radio play oh, like cool. we sat there with a pretend microphone in front of the school and it was completely derivative of the hobbit i mean it was basically but it was totally surreal and trippy like there was like gandalf came out of an egg and then or something and then at the end little uh, bilbo came out of an egg and that's all i remember I, that huh. is last lost to the mists of time but huh. but that is neither here nor there um you could incorporate that into your <laughs> podcast now so you could just come out of an egg Possibly. that's kind of what the surprise video is <laughs> it is exactly that's how we've ended up here i think but no i mean i don't know like first of all i find it completely 
Like, I don't know whether this makes me an egomaniac, but I find it almost impossible to imagine being the kind of person that woman was. Like, yeah. to work behind the scenes of yeah. all these great things, like yeah. having no credit other than in the minds of the Yeah, that the we've writers. never heard of her now. And yeah. she united all of these amazing books. Yeah, I sort of envy and wish I was someone like that. I don't know, like, how do you, how, you know? Yeah, that would be nice to just not have it be about your ego all the time. It also makes you realize how, I don't know, we, we have this mythology of the lone genius and it's nobody really has it as much as writing now where there's just like one name. You know, like if you have a right. movie, there's like 50 billion names at the end yeah. and with a book, there's just this one name. But I don't think the editor's name is anywhere in it. That's right. Yeah, or like it's in the credits in the back or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. This came up actually recently. Um, I was talking to... Gish Jen. Oh, yeah. Um, she's just written a book about like East-West kind of culture oh, cool. clash, which doesn't break down neatly East-West, but basically the idea of like... It never does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically the idea that like, or one idea in there is that we've got the, and this is a bit the artichoke self versus the, <laughs> what's the, the other, the onion, that, you know, the Western self would be the artichoke self mm, and the yeah. Eastern self in a sense would be the onion, although there's also the fact that it's connected with other other people and that here we revere the figure of the genius mm -hmm. whereas you know over there it's the master like mm -hmm. in a long line of tradition oh, yeah, yeah 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 definitely I don't know like how do you negotiate all that as a writer like when you're sitting down because that can be I, I guess in any field of endeavor for me anyway and yeah for anyone I would think it can be pretty daunting to be thinking every time that you have to reinvent the wheel and you have to somehow be utterly unique and you you don't. I mean, I think that that's what led me to invent that Native American camp was I thought, I had thought I had to invent everything. I thought I couldn't, I don't know, I grew up during the Cold War and there was this like fetishization of creativity and I don't know, I thought that I had to just sit in a room and invent all of this stuff, which is not how it works. It's a constant, Shklovsky again talks about, I want to listen to my time, like you can't have a drummer out of step with it. So like you have to take stuff from the outside in and that's going to come to you in the form of, of different people. You can't just sit there. Yeah, I mean, that, but that comes up, right? I mean, when you're sitting down to write a work of fiction, there's this negotiation you have to do in your head, which mm -hmm. is like, how much am I allowed to not make up or whatever? Or is it okay, yeah. you know, or whatever? Like, yeah. But I mean, you've written, this book is like totally delightful and, and beautiful. I've been trying to write more and more fiction mm -hmm. and like there is this tension of like it really better be far out because yeah. I don't want it to be not made up or somehow yeah. that's yeah. cheating or yeah. something. Yeah, I was just like. reading a Knausgaard essay about that, about the, it was the shame of writing about himself and this, how when he decided to give all the characters their real names, he just sat there like an insane person in this apartment and just like wrote and wrote with this mounting sense of freedom and shame that we're like both <laughs> escalating at the same time. Yeah, Knausgaard uh, for the audience who, yeah, yeah, that's the gigantic yeah, series volume. of my, my, my struggle. struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Autobiographical with his name, his family's name, everyone is has their real names in it. Yeah, we make this very clear and bright distinction in some ways that I guess is sort of fake, like between yeah, sort of I don't I don't know. The way yeah. I think of fiction and nonfiction is like if you I sort of I ended up with a career as a nonfiction writer, which I always wanted to write novels. And I ended up, you know, writing nonfiction for the New Yorker where it's really you know, you have a fact checker and I, I learned so much about 
about nonfiction and how important the truth is. But the way I feel now is there's like, you're either making a truth claim about what you're writing and there's a lot of reasons that you want to do that, that you want to say, this, guys, this really happened, this is true, you can, you can call them, you can, you know, and, and then you call it nonfiction. And to me, I don't know, there's kind of like an implication that people sort of act as if to say fiction means there's a stamp on it that says nothing in this book is true, which to me is ludicrous. To me, fiction just means that you're not making a truth claim. You're saying maybe it happened, maybe it didn't happen. That's not the point. The point is this story that I'm telling. I mean, there's a, for me, there's sort of a generosity to fiction which kind of recognizes how flimsy our memories are and how flimsy our kind of claims yeah. on truth are to begin with, you know? Yeah, and, and wh why invoke them if you don't have to, if you don't, right. you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of reasons. Like, I was just thinking about Isaac Bobby, like, as a, as a reader, I would sort of like to know how much of the things in his stories really happened and how much didn't, but I'm happy for them to be called fiction. I'm happy for my curiosity to not necessarily be accommodated in the genre, because maybe if it was, he wouldn't have been able to write them for whatever reason, you know? Right, right, for, right. I mean, obviously for political reasons, but for a whole lot of other reasons too. At the same time, the idea of the intentional fallacy like makes people, um, which I, for anyone who might not know what that is, I guess it's attributing motives that belong to characters in fiction to their creator yeah. or trying to find the author in the work yeah, in some Yeah, or just ways. taking the, the narrator as the author. And, and I mean, obviously, like, overdoing that is bad, but, it's, but it also kind of introduces this guilt, though, that somehow it's prurient mm -hmm. to, like, want to know what's yeah. true and what's not, but I, I don't see... It's not. Of course it's yeah. not. Of course you want to know. And, yeah. like, the relationship between what actually happens in the world and its transformation into literature is one of the most interesting questions there is about literature like in a way yeah, yeah of course you want to know but I mean I guess the danger is like okay therefore Nabokov was a pedophile you know but yeah or, you yeah, uh, well like, and you can't you know, of course it's natural to want to know and to I don't know that that's a huge gray area of course is to what extent do you have the right to dig stuff up and to do sleuth work and I think that changes after the author is dead but you know it's natural to want to know but I don't think it follows that we have a right to ask that of the author. Like, I don't know, a lot of times people say to me in more or less polite ways, why are you calling this a novel? It's obvious it all happened. And setting aside whether or not it all happened, you know, let's say it did, let's say every single thing in The Idiot happened. Why do I have to call it anything? You know, like, why do I have to say that? Maybe, maybe if I had to say that everything in it happened, I wouldn't have written it or I wouldn't have been able to write it. Like maybe right. The, right. We, would, we would have a different series. We would have a, if Proust was writing a memoir, why would we force Proust to write a memoir when he wanted to write a novel? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Again, that's that sort of like irritable, rigid characterization, you know, uh, mm -hmm. categorization mm -hmm. that we want to do, like mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Well, and sort of it's to reclaim, to, yeah, yeah, and sort of to reclaim the novel for, because if it's all true, then it sort of joins the ranks of everything else, of the rest of human knowledge. Whereas if it's a novel, it's its own little world. I don't know. Well, which again, I think maybe goes back to the idea of the the sort of the genius in the Western standout. You know, it's this idea that, like you're the magician that pulled the yeah. rabbit out of the hat, and we yeah. want that. Well, somehow, it's also that like, you're the one subjectivity that's you know, if you're writing nonfiction, you're always trying to have a certain. Basically, other people are mysteries. Their story of themselves trumps your story of them. After you write, even your very delicate arm's length version, someone calls them on the phone and right. checks it with them. 
Whereas if you're, which, if you're doing a, a novel, you're actually, like part of it is the effort to get inside other people's subjectivities and you, you know them better than you know people in nonfiction. I mean, there you don't, I don't know, someone like Yvonne and the Idiot, I don't know everything about him, but I know a lot. Right, but you're allowing you're allowing yourself yeah. to also kind of make some yeah. fictional assumptions about yeah. what might be going on with him. Yeah. So I think that's as good a place as any to randomly surprisingly transition. Yeah, let's to surprise the next ourselves thing. Now, yeah. yeah. Okay. This is Salman Rushdie okay. talking about Islam and political correctness. I think there's something very worrying happening. Uh, as it were, on the left. You know, something, they, it used to be that it was the conservatives, both in America and Europe, who used to criticize people for criticizing religion. That used to be a right-wing polemic. Now, it's become a left-wing polemic. And I think the argument goes that Muslim groups in America and Western Europe are often economically disadvantaged and suffer from various kinds of prejudice and racism and have difficult lives and therefore to criticize the religion is to further attack them and that shouldn't be done. It happened to a certain extent when the trouble was surrounding me but but actually less so then. In those days the argument was the criticisms were still mostly from the right from people like you know the Cardinal of New York or the chief rabbi of Great Britain or the Pope you know, all of whom found it perfectly possible to sympathize with Islamic religious leaders um, about me. You know, so, and that taught me something interesting about the unity of the God Squad, you know. Now it seems that this liberal spirit of appeasement, of political correctness, is a new problem. Because, of course, it's obviously quite right to say that communities that are discriminated against and oppressed and economically disadvantaged need to be need to have those issues looked at you know and 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 we need to try and deal with those issues that's not the same thing as saying you can't criticize ideas they seem to hold you can't ring fence ideas it's one thing to say people must not be discriminated against but to say that ideas become illegitimate or legitimate because they're held by disadvantaged people you know, is it's, there's just a, it's just a flaw. And it's very important to remember that when free expression is diminished or restricted, it's usually minority groups that suffer first. Where do you want to start with this? We could start with Turkey. I mean, that, that's possible. Yeah, and yeah. I'm writing about these issues right now. That When I grew up, my parents were from the secularist generation and Turkey, when they came to the U.S., they basically taught me to think that nationalism and religion and all these things were over. And th there was this like, oh, it's so hard to talk about. Turkey is really confusing is too really to confusing. Americans. Well, like, but there was exactly yeah. this shift that he's <laughs> yeah. talking about, which I thought I experienced it as a shift in coolness because when I was young, it was <laughs> like it was cool to be secular, and it was kind of like stodgy and unsexy to be religious. It was seen as like you know close-minded. And then when I went back to Turkey as an adult, I saw that it was the exact opposite. Suddenly, if you're secularist, you're old, stodgy, outside of the times, you're a fascist, you're Islamophobic, and 
all of the cool intersectional people were like religious or had some kind of like religious thing going on, which was like completely against everything that I grew up thinking. They even like look, I mean, there's like the young women, the young Islamist women in yeah. Turkey have like a the specific he yeah. headscarf style. Yeah. And like there's yeah. a whole thing. Like you can see that they're the like the, the cool, contemporary yeah. ones. Yeah. yeah. With the converse and the trench coat and the everything. And I mean, in France, you know, I mean, like we we look from America and we say, you know, the burkini ban and the mm -hmm. like cops on the beach like in ordering a woman yeah. to take her burkini yeah. off. Like but that's a horrifying. It's horrifying. Yeah. We don't we don't like that. But when I first went to Turkey, like this was part of the like ignorant young me. Like I was going over there and I was just like, you can't oppress you. What you're they don't let them wear headscarves in the yeah. parliament. I mean, yeah. this is outrageous. Like yeah. freedom of religion yeah. is basic, you know. Yeah. And lots of people were like, well, I don't think you know where you are. You know, yeah. it's like we're like a little drop in a sea of like people waving scimitars. You know. Well, it's kind really of like, yeah, it's really complicated. If they're wearing the scarves because they really want to, then great. But how can you separate that from? all of the rhetoric surrounding it, which I've written about. I, like I wrote about religious guys telling me women get raped when they don't wear headscarves yeah. because it gives the wrong idea. So how can you separate, the, how can you know what are the reasons for doing it? What becomes so dissonant for me is that it takes you, depending on the context, it takes you to this place where you really have to kind of, you feel like you have to draw a bright line in the sand and I'm not the kind of person that likes yeah. to do that so much. Yeah. What would I be okay with? What principles? I don't know. You know like I mean, for me, the line, like when just maybe, I don't know if it's because I was indoctrinated, but I just think strict separation of church and state, people can do whatever they want in private. There have to be the same laws for everyone in public. I mean, that. Yeah, I mean, the problem is, I mean, I guess the issue is, and this is what the like Islamists would say, but not all of them. There are, there's yeah. obviously many different kinds of, I guess, Islamists, but, you know, if your fundamental values yeah. are that like people shouldn't be drinking yeah. and that like if you're you know the the laws secular laws allow people to be drunk in the at the yeah. mehane in the street yeah, yeah i mean apparently like all the mehanes which for the listeners are these like glorious Cabins, kind yeah. of like many of them were like in the streets of istanbul in little alleyways and they like the gypsies were playing music and you would mm -hmm. drink and eat and uh, apparently many of them have been closed down near yeah. Istiklal yeah. and like, you know. I don't know. I think of that more as kind of like a zoning issue than a philosophical <laughs> issue. Like, yeah, you don't want... A zoning I don't know. Like, where are you allowed to drink outside? Because a lot of it is about drinking outside versus drinking inside. The, the things that they closed aren't, as far as I know, it's they stopped people from sitting on outside tables. Yeah. Well, I mean, but it's, you know, it's about, like, defining the cultural parameters yeah. of your society. Yeah, it is. And, the I mean, the kind of mind-blowing thing to me is that what I thought of, because my parents are both scientists, and, you know, positivism and science were super important to Ataturk, and that was part of the, the Turkish revolution. And there was this idea that they had that these are the universal, like, these are universal truths that are true for everyone. If you have bacteria, no matter who you are, what religion you are, the, you know, penicillin will kill it. And... This seemed so obvious to me when I was younger, and when I grew up, I saw that even science is is seen as as Western, but especially like Enlightenment ideals, which I thought of as universal. But of course, they did originate at a certain place in Western Europe for a series of economic and social and cultural and political reasons. That's where they came from. So, in a way, to believe in what I thought of as universal values is to be in Turkey a westernizer, or, you know, even to the extent that believing in a certain kind of 
scientific truth, what I think is scientific truth, evidence-based right. scientific truth is westernization. And in that, in that article about Turkey, uh, or one of them that you wrote for The New Yorker, like you, you talk about Holbeck's book mm -hmm. and, you know, and sort of the case that gets made to modern French mm -hmm. women about why it might be better to adopt the yeah. veil of Islam. And like, you know, which of us can point to American culture right now and sort of beat our chests with pride? You yeah, know? and say this <laughs> like, is what is going to make women feel safe and comfortable. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, which is not to say that I, I fundamentally have a problem like advocating the idea of traditional religious families. It's totally alien to my worldview, but you yeah. know, I'm not crazy about McDonald's and naked and afraid yeah. either. You know. Yeah. Which, is, like, which is, you know, a TV show apparently. Like, I don't know, but they I They make people naked and put them like in the jungle or something. afraid, and it just <laughs> sounds like it would make it even yeah. worse. And when you add McDonald's to that, it sounds very distasteful. Yeah. But, um, yeah. <laughs> I, but yeah, I, I guess I, I would just think that when education gets to a certain level, then people won't want to eat in McDonald's anymore when... Right. That's true. But I mean, it's going to be a really long time until that happens. And in the meantime, we're going to suffer no matter what we do, whether we're in a traditional society or whether we're running right. around in the jungle like we are here. Yeah. I guess to wind it up and going back to kind of the Salman Rushdie's point, like I find myself irritated by and disagreeing with certain passionate reactions from the progressive left mm -hmm. around religion and things that one sees that are happening on campuses. But you, like, the fear and I guess the danger always is like you just don't want to, I don't want to end up the like old man yeah. waving my fist for secular humanism, you yeah. know, like yeah. being like, you kids, you know, yeah, I mean, there must yeah, be something yeah. they're talking about. You yeah, know? no, I'm, yeah, there, <laughs> there must be. Well, and it, on the other hand, after Trump, I think all of us old secular humanists feel a little bit empowered to not be like, oh, everyone's ideas are equally valid. Like, no, it's important to stand for the, know, however too. stodgy they seem. I yeah, think, it's just I weird to find I'm, oneself on the, on the conservative side. Yeah, yeah it go is ahead. weird. It yeah. is weird. It messes with your self-image. <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm not saying that it's not, it's not taking a hit. I'm not saying it's going to be like easy and make me feel great about myself, but I think... I'm prepared to be the old person shaking their fist for secular humanism uh, and looking uh, totally out of it and, and missing the boat in some way, I'm sure. But I, you know, that's just. Yeah, that's interesting. I yeah, I think I, I kind of am too and just haven't admitted it to yeah. myself yet. But it's not, it's not, <laughs> it's fun. not, yeah, it's we, not we, sexy. No, you know. it's not sexy. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, um, <laughs> Elif Batuman, thank you so much for being on Think Again today. Oh, thank I really you. This is a pleasure. it for another episode of think again we have lots of cool and varied and interesting shows coming up um, and i hope that you'll be back to join us for those if you're listening and you're liking what you're hearing and you haven't had a chance to do it yet please rate or review the show on itunes or stitcher or google play or wherever you listen it's a big help to us and feel free to write me an email at jason at bigthink.com. I've been hearing from a lot of people, maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 people so far. Really varied and interesting people talking about where and how and why they listen. And it's been a delight. And I've written back to all of them. So unless an overwhelming, <laughs> you know, hundreds of people start writing in, 
uh, I think I'll be able to continue writing back to each person individually. So I'd really enjoy hearing from you. And uh, we'll see you next week.